Welcome to Sniper's Rest. Sniper's Rest is the last best rest stop in the here and there. The place between where you're coming from and where you're going. I am Sniper Shadow and I reside here in Sniper's Rest as a guide and custodian to those who pass through here. I visit the worlds within the multiverse often, but I am always here to guide and care for the travellers such as yourself that pass through the here and there. Welcome my friend. It is good to see you again. I hope you had a wonderful holiday and got some much needed rest. Frank and I spent our time visiting family and friends and relaxing here in the quiet silence of the here and there. We are so happy to welcome travelers back into the rest stop again and hope that this new year brings you health, happiness and peace. Please take a rest here before continuing your journey. Last we saw you, my friend, we were reading the picture of Dorian Gray. A few years had passed and Dorian Gray had lived by his obsession with a book filled with the sins of humanity. Gaining himself a reputation as a tainted soul that shame followed around. Basil, concerned for his friend, confronts Dorian, who in a moment filled with madness offers to show him the cursed portrait. Let's see what happens next. Chapter 13 He passed out of the room and began the ascent, Basil Hallward following closely behind. They walked softly as men do instinctively at night. The lamp cast fantastic shadows on the wall and staircase. A rising wind made some of the windows rattle. When they reached the top landing, Dorian set the lamp down on the floor and taking out the key, turned it in the lock. You insist on knowing, Basil? He asked in a low voice. Yes, I am delighted. He answered, smiling. Then he added, somewhat harshly, You are the one man in the world who is entitled to know everything about me. You have had more to do with my life than you think. And taking up the lamp, he opened the door and went in. A cold current of air passed them, and the light shot up for a moment in the flame of the murky orange. He shuddered. Shut the door behind you. He whispered as he placed the lamp on the table. Hallward glanced round him with a puzzled expression. The room looked as if it had not been lived in for years. A faded Flemish tapestry, a curtained picture, an old Italian casson, and an almost empty bookcase. That was all it seemed to contain besides the chair and the table. As Dorian Gray was lighting a half-burned candle, that was standing on the mantel shelf. He saw that the whole place was covered with dust and that the carpet was in holes. A mouse ran scuffling behind the waistcoating. There was a damp odor of mildew. So you think that it is only God who sees your soul, Basil? Draw that curtain back and you will see mine. The voice that spoke was cold and cruel. You are mad, Dorian, or playing a part, muttered Hallward, frowning. You won't? Then I must do it myself, said the young man, and he tore the curtain from its rod and flung it on the ground. An exclamation of horror from the painter's lips as he saw in the dim light the hideous face on the canvas grinning at him. There was something in its expression that filled him with disgust and loathing. Good heavens, it was Dorian Gray's own face that he was looking at. 
the horror, whatever it was, had not yet entirely spoiled that marvellous beauty. There was still some gold in the thinning hair and some scarlet on the sensual mouth. The sodden eyes had kept something of the loveliness of their blue. The noble curves had not yet completely passed away from the chiselled nostrils and from the plastic throat. Yes, it was Dorian himself, but who had done it? He seemed to recognise his own brushwork, and the frame was his own design. The idea was monstrous, yet he felt afraid. He seized the lighted candle and held it to the picture. In the left corner was his own name, traced in long letters of bright vermilion. There was some foul parody, some infamous, ignoble satire. He had never done that. Still, it was his own picture. He knew it, and he felt as if his blood had changed in a moment from fire to sluggish ice. His own picture. What did it mean? Why had it altered? He turned and looked at Dorian Gray with the eyes of a sick man. His mouth twitched, and his parched tongue seemed unable to articulate. He passed his hand across his forehead. It was dank and clammy with sweat. The young man was leaning against the mantel shelf, watching him with that strange expression that one sees on the faces of those who are absorbed in a play when some great artist is acting. There was neither real sorrow in it, nor real joy. There was simply the passion of the spectator, with perhaps a flicker of triumph in his eyes. He had taken the flower out of his coat and was smelling it, or pretending to do so. What does it mean? cried Hallward at last. His own voice sounded shrill and curious in his ears. Years ago, when I was a boy, said Dorian, crushing the flower in his hand, you met me, flattered me, and taught me to be vain of my good looks. One day you introduced me to a friend of yours, who explained to me the wonder of youth, and you finished a portrait of me that revealed to me the wonder of my beauty. In a mad moment, and even now, I don't know whether I regret or not. I made a wish. Perhaps you would call it a prayer. I remember it. Oh, how well I remember it. No, the thing is impossible. The room is damp. Mildew has gotten into the canvas. The paints I used had some wretched mineral poison in them. I tell you, the thing is impossible. Ah, what is impossible? murmured the young man, going over to the window and leaning his forehead against the cold, mist-stained glass. You told me you had destroyed it. I was wrong. It has destroyed me. I don't believe it is my picture. Can't you see your ideal in it? said Dorian bitterly. My ideal, as you call it, as you called it. There is nothing evil in it, nothing shameful. You were to me such an ideal as I shall never meet again. This is the face of a satire. That is the face of my soul. Christ, what a thing! I must have worshipped. It has the eyes of a devil. Each of us has heaven and hell in him, Basil, cried Dorian with a wild gesture of despair. Hallward turned again to the portrait and gazed at it. My 
God, if it is true, he exclaimed. And this is what you have done with your life. Why, you must be worse, even, than those who talk against you fancy you to be. He held the light up again to the canvas and examined it. The surface seemed to be quite undisturbed, and as he had left it, it was from within, apparently, that the foulness and horror had come. Though some strange quickening of inner life, the leprosies of sin were slowly eating the thing away. The rotting of a corpse in a watery grave was not so fearful. His hand shook, and the candle fell from its socket on the floor and lay there spluttering. He placed a foot on it and put it out. Then he flung himself into the rickety chair that was standing by the table and buried his face in his hands. Good God, Dorian! What a lesson! What an awful lesson! There was no answer, but he could hear the young man sobbing at the window. Pray, Dorian, pray, he murmured. What is it that one was taught to say in one's boyhood? Lead us not into temptation. Forgive us our sins. Wash away our iniquities. Let us say that together. The prayer for your pride has been answered. The prayer for your repentance will be answered also. I worshipped you too much. I am punished for it. You worshipped yourself too much. We are both punished. Dorian Gray turned slowly around and looked at him with tear-dimmed eyes. It is too late, Basil, he faltered. It is never too late, Dorian. Let us kneel down and try if we cannot remember a prayer. Isn't there a verse somewhere? Through your sins be as scarlet, yet I will make them as white as snow. Those words mean nothing to me now. Hush! Don't say that. You have done enough evil in your life. My God, don't you see that accursed thing leering at us? Dorian Gray glanced at the picture, and suddenly an uncontrollable feeling of hatred for Basil Hallward came over him, as though it had been suggested to him by the image on the canvas, whispered into his ear by those grinning lips. The mad passions of a haunted animal stirred within him, and he loathed the man who was seated at the table. More than in his whole life had he ever loathed anything. He glanced wildly around. Something glimmered at the top of the painted chest that faced him. His eye fell on it. He knew what it was. It was a knife that he had brought up some days before to cut a piece of cord, forgotten to take away with him. He moved slowly towards it, passing Hallward as he did so. As soon as he got behind him, he seized it and turned around. Hallward stirred in the chair as if he was going to rise. He rushed at him and dug the knife into the great vein behind his ear, crushing the man's head down on the table and stabbing him again and again. There was a stifled groan and the horrible sound of someone choking with blood. Three times the outstretched arms shot up convulsively, waving grotesque, stiff-fingered hands in the air. He stabbed him twice more, but the man did not move. Something began to trickle on the floor. He waited a moment, still pressing the head down. Then he threw the knife on the table and listened. He could hear nothing but the drip, 
drip on the threadbare carpet. He opened the door and went out on the landing. The house was absolutely quiet. No one was about. For a few seconds he stood, bending over the balustrade and peering down into the black seething well of darkness. He then took out the key and returned to the room, locking himself in as he did so. The thing was still seated in the chair, straining over the table with bowed head and humped back and long fantastic arms. Had it not been the red jagged tear in the neck and the clotted black pool that was slowly widening on the table, one would have thought the man was simply asleep. How quickly it had all been done. He felt strangely calm, walking over to the window, opening it and stepped out on the balcony. The wind had blown the fog away, and the sky was like a monstrous peacock's tail, starred with the myriads of golden eyes. He looked down and saw the policeman going his rounds, flashing the long beam of his lantern along the doors of the silent houses. The crimson spot of a prowling hansom gleamed in the corner, then vanished. A woman in a fluttering shawl was creeping slowly by the railings, staggering as she went. Now and then she stopped and peered back. Once she began to sing in a hoarse voice. The policeman strolled over and said something to her. She stumbled away laughing. A bitter blast swept across the square. The gas lamps flickered and became blue and the leafless trees shook their black iron branches to and fro. He shivered and went back, closing the window behind him. Having reached the door, he turned the key and opened it. He did not even glance at the murdered man. He felt that the secret of the whole thing was not to realize the situation. The friend who had painted the fatal portrait to which all his misery had been due had gone out of his life. That was enough. Then he remembered the lamp. It was a rather curious one of Moorish workmanship, made of dull silver inlaid with arabesque of burnished steel, and studded with coarse turquoises. Perhaps it might be missed by his servant, and questions would be asked. He hesitated for a moment, then he turned back and took it from the table. He could not help seeing the dead thing. How still it was. How horribly white the long hands looked. It was like a dreadful wax image. Having locked the door behind him, he crept quietly downstairs. The woodwork creaked and seemed to cry out as if in pain. He stopped several times and waited. No, everything was still. It was merely the sound of his own footsteps. When he reached the library, he saw the bag and coat in the corner. They must be hidden away somewhere. He unlocked the secret press that was in the wainscoting. A press in which he kept his own curious disguises and put them into it. He could easily burn them afterwards. Then he pulled out his watch. It was 20 minutes to two. He sat down and began to think. Every year, every month almost, Men were strangled in England for what he had done. There had been a madness of murder in the air. Some red star had come too close to earth, and yet what evidence was there against him? 
Basil Hallward had left the house at eleven. No one had seen him come in again. Most of the servants were at Selby Royal. His valet had gone to bed. Paris, yes. It was to Paris that Basil had gone, by the midnight train, as he intended. With his curious reserved habit, habits, it would be months before any suspicions were roused. Months. Everything would be destroyed long before then. A sudden thought struck him. He put on his fur coat and hat and went out into the hall. There he paused, hearing the slow heavy tread of the policeman on the pavement outside, and seeing the flash of a bull's eye reflected in the window, he waited and held his breath. After a few moments he drew back the latch and slipped out, shutting the door very gently behind him. Then he began ringing the bell. In about five minutes his valet appeared, half-dressed and looking very drowsy. I am sorry to have woken you up, Francis, he said, stepping in, but I had forgotten my latchkey. What time is it? Ten minutes past two, sir, answered the man, looking at the clock and blinking. Ten minutes past two. How horribly late. You must wake me at nine tomorrow. I have some work to do. All right, sir. Did anyone call this evening? Mr. Hallwood, sir. He stayed here until eleven and then he went away to catch his train. Oh, I am sorry I didn't see him. Did he leave any message? No, sir, except that he would write you from Paris if he did not find you at the club. That will do, Francis. Don't forget to call me at nine tomorrow. No, sir. The man shambled down the passage in his slippers. Dorian Gray threw his hat and coat upon the table and passed into the library. For a quarter of an hour, he walked up and down the room, biting his lip and thinking. Then he took down the blue book from one of the shelves and began to turn over the leaves. Alan Campbell, 152 Hertford Street, Mayfair. Yes, that was the man he wanted. Chapter 14 At nine o'clock the next morning, his servant came up with a cup of chocolate on a tray and opened the shutters. Dorian was sleeping quite peacefully, lying on his right side, with one hand underneath his cheek. He looked like a boy who had been tired out with play or study. The man had to touch him twice on the shoulder before he woke, and as he opened his eyes, a faint smile passed across his lips, as though he had been lost in some delightful dream. Yet he had not dreamed at all. His night had been untroubled by any images of pleasure or of pain, but youth smiles without any reason. It is one of its chiefest charms. He turned around and, leaning upon his elbow, began to sip his chocolate. The mellow November sun came streaming into the room. The sky was bright, and there was a genial warmth in the air. It was almost like a morning in May. Gradually, the events of the preceding night crept in with silent, blood-stained feet into his brain and reconstructed themselves there with terrible distinctness. He winced at the memory of all that he had suffered, and for a moment the same curious feeling of loathing for Basil Hallward that had made him kill him as he sat in the chair came back to him, and he grew cold with passion. The dead man was still sitting there too, and in the sunlight now, 
How horrible that was. Such hideous things were for the darkness, not for the day. He felt that if he brooded on what he had gone through, he would sicken or grow mad. There were sins whose fascination was more in the memory than in the doing of them. Strange triumphs that gratified the pride more than the passions and gave to the intellect a quickened sense of joy greater than any joy they brought or could ever bring to the senses. But this was not one of them. It was a thing to be driven out of the mind, to be drugged with poppies, to be strangled lest it might strangle oneself. When the half hour struck, he passed his hand across his forehead, then got up hastily and dressed himself with even more than his usual care, giving a good deal of attention to the choice of his necktie and scarf pin, changing the rings more than once. He spent a long time over breakfast, tasting the various dishes, talking to his valet about some new liveries that he was thinking of getting made for the servants at Selby, and going through his correspondence. At some of the letters he smiled. Three of them bored him. One he read several times over, then tore up with a slight look of annoyance on his face. That awful thing, a woman's memory, as Lord Henry had said once. After he had drunk his cup of black coffee, he wiped his lips, slowly with a napkin, motioned his servant to wait, and going over to the table, sat down and wrote two letters. One he put in his pocket, the other he handed to the valet. Take this round to 152 Hertford Street, Francis, and if Mr. Campbell is out of town, get his address. As soon as he was alone, he lit a cigarette and began sketching upon a piece of paper, first drawing flowers and then bits of architecture, then the human faces. Suddenly, he remarked that every face he drew seemed to have a fantastic likeness to Basil Hallward, who frowned, and getting up, went over to the bookcase and took out a volume at hazard. He determined that he would not think about what had happened until it became absolutely necessary that he should do so. When he had stretched himself on the sofa, he looked at the title page of the book. It was Gratuus Emui Kamen. Sharpenter's Japanese paper edition, with the Jacquemet etching. The binding was of citron green leather, with a design of gilt trellis work and dotted pomegranates. It had been given to him by Adrian Singleton. As he turned over the pages, his eyes fell upon a poem about the hand of Lassonaire, the cold yellow hand. Du supplice encore malave with its downy red hairs and its doigts de faune. He glanced at his own white taper fingers, shuddering slightly in spite of himself, and passed on till he came to those lovely stanzas upon Venice. Jurengrem Cormatic, Leçon de Pérez Rissolant, La Venus de l'Adriatique, Zordelou Corps Rose en Blanc, La dune sur la zette des hommes. Zivou la praz a vous contour. Sa fond comme de gros orons. Que zivou en 
Samsung Demol. Kifabo Dema Depols. Samsuma O Pilier. Devon O Facedros. Zole Marb Dun Escalier. How exquisite they were. As one read them, one seemed to be floating down the green waterways of the pink and pearl city, seated in a black gondola with a silver prow and trailing curtains. The mere lines looked to him like those straight lines of turquoise blue that followed one as one pushes out to the Lido. The sudden flashes of colour reminded him of the gleam of the opal and iris-throated birds that flutter round the tall, honeycombed campanile, or stalk with such stately grace through the dim, dusted arcades. Leaning back with half-closed eyes, he kept saying over and over to himself, Devon au façade rose sola mecab d'un escalier. The whole of Venice was in those two lines. He remembered the autumn that he had passed there, and the wonderful love that had stirred him to make mad, delightful follies. There was romance in every place, but Venice, like Oxford, had kept the background for romance, and to the true romantic, background was everything, or almost everything. Basil had been with him part of the time, and had gone wild over Tintoret. Poor Basil, what a horrible way for a man to die. He sighed, and took up the volume again, and tried to forget. He read of the swallows that fly in and out of the little cafes at Samanra, where the men sit counting their amber beads, and the turbaned merchants smoke their long tasseled pipes, and talk gravely to each other. He read of the obelisk in the place della Corde that weeps the tears of granite in the lonely sunless exile and longs to be back in the hot lotus-covered Nile where there are sphinxes and rose-red ibises and white vultures with gilded claws and crocodiles with small barrel eyes that crawl over green steaming mud. He began to brood over those verses which drawing music from kiss-stained marble tell of that curious statue that Gratou compares to a contralto voice. The monstre charmant crouches in the porphyry room of the Louvre. But after a time the book fell from his hand. He grew nervous and a horrible fit of terror came over him. What if Alan Campbell should be out of England? Days would elapse before he could come back. Perhaps he might refuse to come. What could he do then? Every moment was of vital importance. They had been great friends once, five years before, almost inseparable indeed. Then the intimacy had suddenly come to an end. When they met in society now, it was only Dorian Gray who smiled. Alan Campbell never did. He was an extremely clever young man though he had no real appreciation of the visible arts, and whatever little sense of beauty of poetry he possessed, he had gained entirely from Dorian. His dormant intellectual passion for science. At Cambridge, he had spent a great deal of his time working in the laboratory, and had taken a good class in the natural science typos of that year. 
Indeed, he was still devoted to the study of chemistry, and had a laboratory of his own, in which he used to shut himself up in all day long, greatly to the annoyance of his mother, who had her heart set on his standing for Parliament, and had a vague idea that a chemist was a person who made up prescriptions. He was an excellent musician, however, as well, and played both violin and the piano better than most amateurs. In fact, it was music that had first brought him and Dorian Gray together. Music and that indefinable attraction that Dorian seemed to be able to exercise whenever he wished, and indeed exercised often without even being conscious of it. They had met at Lady Birkenshire's that night the Rubenstein played there, and after that used to be always seen together at the opera, and wherever good music was going on. For eighteen months their intimacy lasted. Campbell was either always at Selby Royal or in Grovesner Square. To him, as to many, Dorian Gray was the type of everything that is wonderful and fascinating in life. Whether or not the quarrel had taken place between them, no one ever knew, but suddenly people remarked that they scarcely spoke when they met, and that Campbell always seemed to go away early from any party at which Dorian Gray was present. He had changed too, was strangely melancholy at times, appeared almost to dislike hearing music, and would never himself play, giving as his excuse, when he was called upon, that he was so absorbed in science that he had no time left in which to practice. And this was certainly true. Every day he seemed to become more interested in biology, and his name appeared once or twice in some of the scientific reviews in connection with certain curious experiments. This was the man Dorian Gray was waiting for. Every second he kept glancing at the clock. As minutes went by, he became horribly agitated. At last he got up and began to pace up and down the room, looking like a beautiful caged thing. He took healthy, long strides. His hands were curiously cold. The suspense became unbearable. Time seemed to be crawling with the feet of lead while he, by monstrous winds, was being swept towards the jagged edge of some black cleft of precipice. He knew what he was waiting for there, saw it, indeed, and shuddering, crushed with dank hands, burning his lids as though he would have robbed the very brain of sight and driven the eyeball back into their cave. It was useless. The brain had its own food on which it was battened, and the imagination, made grotesque by terror, twisted and distorted as a living thing by pain, danced like some foul puppet on a stand and grinned through moving masks. Then suddenly time stopped for him. Yes, that blind, slow-breathing thing crawled no more, and horrible thoughts, time being dead, raced nimbly on in front and dragged a hideous future from its grave and showed it to him. He stared at it. Its very horror made him stone. At last the door opened and his servant entered. He turned glazed eyes upon him. Mr. Campbell, sir, said the man. A sigh of relief broke from his parched lips and the colour came back to his cheeks. Ask him to come in at once, Francis. He felt that he was himself again. His mood of cowardice had passed away. The man bowed and retired. In a few moments, Alan Campbell walked in, looking very stern and rather pale, his pallor being intens intensified by his black coal hair and dark eyebrows. Alan, this is kind of you. I thank you for coming. 
I had intended to never enter your house again, Grey, but you said it was a matter of life and death. His voice was hard and cold. He spoke with slow deliberation. There was a look of contempt in the steady, searching gaze that he turned on Dorian. He kept his hands in the pockets of his Ashtkaran coat, and seemed not to have noticed the gesture with which he had been greeted. Yes, it is a matter of life and death, Alan, and to more than one person. Sit down. Campbell took a chair by the table, and Dorian sat opposite him. The two men's eyes met. In Dorian's there was infinite pity. He knew that what he was going to do was dreadful. After a strained moment of silence, he leaned across and said very quietly, but watching the effort of each word upon the face of him he had sent for, Alan, in a locked room at the top of this house, a room to which nobody but myself has access, a dead man is seated at a table. He has been dead ten hours now. Don't stir and don't look at me like that. Who is the man, why he died, how he died, are matters that do not concern you. What you have to do is this. Stop, Grey. I don't want to know anything further. Whether what you have told me is true or not, it doesn't concern me. I entirely decline to be mixed up in your life. Keep your horrible secrets to yourself. They don't interest me anymore. Alan, they will have to interest you. This one will have to interest you. I am awfully sorry for you, Alan, but I can't help myself. You are the one man who is able to save me. I am forced to bring you into the matter. I have no option. Alan, you are scientific. You know about chemistry and that kind of thing. You have made experiments. What you have got to do is destroy the thing that is upstairs. To destroy it, so as not a vestige will be left. Nobody saw this person come into the house. Indeed, at the present moment, he is supposed to be in Paris. But he will not be missed for months. When he is missed, there must be no trace of him found here. You, Alan, must change him and everything that belongs to him into a handful of ashes that I may scatter into the air. You are mad, Dorian. Ah, I was waiting for you to call me Dorian. You are mad, and I tell you, mad to imagine that I would raise a finger to help you. Mad to make this monstrous confession. I will have nothing to do with this matter. Whatever it is, do you think I am going to peril my reputation for you? What is it to me, the devil's work you're up to? It was suicide, Alan. I am glad of that, but what drove him to it? You, I should fancy. Do you still refuse to do this for me? Of course I refuse. I will have absolutely nothing to do with it. I don't care what shame comes upon you. You deserve it all. I should not be sorry to see you disgraced, publicly disgraced. How dare you ask this of me, all the men in the world, to mix myself up in this horror. You should have thought you knew more about people's characters. Your friend Lord Henry Wotton can't have taught you much about psychology. Whatever else he has taught you, nothing will induce me to stir a step to help you. You have come to the wrong man. Now go to some of your friends. Don't come to me. Alan, it was murder. I killed him. You don't know what he has made me suffer. Whatever my life is, he had more to do with the making or the marring of it than poor Harry has ever had. He may not have intended it, but the result was the same. 
Murder? Good God, Dorian. Is that what you've come to? I shall not inform upon you. It is not my business. Besides, without my stirring in the matter, you are certain to be arrested. Nobody ever commits a crime without doing something stupid. But I will have nothing to do with it. You must have something to do with it. Wait. Wait a moment and listen to me. Only listen, Helen. All I ask of you is to perform a certain scientific experiment. You go to hospitals and dead houses, and the horrors that you do there don't affect you. If in some hideous dissecting room or fetid laboratory, you have found this man lying on a leaden table with red gutters scooped out for the blood to flow through, you would simply look upon him as an admirable subject. You would not turn a hair. You would not believe that you were doing anything wrong. On the contrary, you would probably feel as if you were benefiting the human race or increasing the sum of knowledge in the world or gratifying intellectual curiosity or something of that kind. What I want for you to do is merely what you have often done before. Indeed, to destroy a body must be far less horrible than what you are accustomed to work at. And remember, it is only a piece of evidence against me. If it is discovered, I am lost. And it is sure to be discovered unless you help me. I have no desire to help you. You forget that. I am simply indifferent to the whole bloody thing. It has nothing to do with me. Alan, I entreat you. Think of the position I am in. Just before you came, I almost fainted with terror. You may know terror someday yourself. No, don't think on that. Look at the matter purely from a scientific point of view. You don't inquire where the dead things on which you experiment come from. Don't inquire now. I have told you too much as it is, but I beg of you to do this. We were friends once, Alan. Don't speak about those days, Dorian. They are dead. The dead linger sometimes. The man upstairs will not go away. He's sitting at the table with bowed head and outstretched arms. Alan, Alan, if you don't come to my assistance, I am ruined. Why, they will hang me, Alan, don't you understand? They will hang me for what I have done. There is no good in prolonging this scene. I absolutely refuse to do anything in the matter. It is insane if you ask me. Yes. I entreat you, Alan. It is useless. The same look of pity came into Dorian Gray's eyes. Then he stretched out his hand, took a piece of paper, and wrote something on it. He read over it twice, folded it carefully, and pushed it across the table. Having done this, he got up and went over to the window. Campbell looked at him in surprise and then took the paper and opened it. As he read, his face became ghastly pale and he fell back in his chair. A horrible sense of sickness came over him. He felt as if his heart was beating itself to death in some empty hollow. After two or three minutes of horrible silence, Dorian turned round and came and stood behind him, putting a hand upon his shoulder. I am so sorry for you, Alan, but you leave me no alternative. I have already a letter written. Here it is. You see the address. And if you don't help me, I must send it. If you don't help me, I will send it. You know what the result will be. 
But you are going to help me. It is impossible for you to refuse me now. I tried to spare you. You will do me the justice to admit that. You were stern, harsh, offensive. You treated me as no man has ever dared treat me. No living man at any rate. I bore it all. Now it is time for me to dictate the terms. Campbell buried his face in his hands, and a shudder passed through him. Yes, it is my turn to dictate terms, Alan. You know what they are. The thing is quite simple. Come. Don't work yourself into this fever. Things have to be done. Let's face it and do it. A groan broke from Campbell's lips and he shivered all over. The ticking of the clock on the mantelpiece seemed to him to be dividing time into separate atoms of agony, each of which is too terrible to be borne. He felt as if an iron ring was being slowly tightened around his forehead, as if the disgrace with which he was threatened had already come upon him. The hand upon his shoulder weighted like a hand of lead. It was intolerable. It seemed to crush him. Come, Alan. You must decide at once. I cannot do it, he said mechanically, as though the words could alter things. You must. You have no choice. Don't delay. He hesitated a moment. Is, is there a fire in the room upstairs? Yes, there is a gaslit fire with asbestos. I shall have to go home and get some things from the laboratory. No, Alan. You must not leave the house. Write out a sheet of notepaper of what you want, and my servant will take a cab and bring the things back to you. Campbell scrawled a few lines, blotted them, and addressed an envelope to his assistant. Dorian took up the note and read it carefully. Then he rang the bell and gave it to his valet, with the orders to return as soon as possible and to bring the things with him. As the hall door shut, Campbell started nervously. Having gotten up from his chair, he went over to the chimney piece. He was shivering with a kind of ague. For nearly twenty minutes, neither of the men spoke. A fly buzzed noisily about the room, and the ticking of the clock was like a beating of a hammer. As the chime struck one, Campbell turned around, and looking at Dorian Gray, saw that his eyes were filled with tears. There was something in the purity, and the refinement, of that sad face that seemed to enrage him. You're infamous, absolutely infamous, he muttered. Hush, Alan, you have saved my life, said Dorian. Your life? Good heavens, what a life that is. You have gone from corruption to corruption, and now you have culminated in crime. And in doing what I am going to do, what you force me to do, it is not of your life I am thinking. Ah, Alan, murmured Dorian with a sigh. I wish you had a thousandth part of the pity for me that I have for you. He turned away as he spoke and stood looking out at the garden. Campbell made no answer. After about ten minutes, a knock came to the door and the servant entered, carrying a large mahogany chest of chemicals, with a long coil of steel and platinum wire, and two rather curiously shaped iron clamps. "'Shall I leave the things here, sir?' he asked Campbell. "'Yes,' said Dorian. "'And I am afraid, Francis, that I have another errand for you. "'What is the name of the man at Richmond who supplies Selby with orchids?' "'Harden, sir.' 
Yes, Hardin. You must go down to Richmond at once and see Hardin personally and tell him to send twice as many orchids as I ordered and to have a few white ones as possible. In fact, I don't want any white ones. It is a lovely day, Francis. And Richmond is a very pretty place. Otherwise, I wouldn't bother you about it. No trouble, sir. At what time shall I be back? Dorian looked at Campbell. How long will the experiment take, Alan? He said in a calm, indifferent voice. The presence of a third person in the room seemed to give him extraordinary courage. Campbell frowned and bit his lip. It will take about five hours, he answered. It will be enough time, then, if you are back at half past seven, Francis. Or stay. Just leave my things out for dressing. You can have the evening to yourself. I'm not dining at home, so I shall not want you. Thank you, sir, said the man, leaving the room. Now, Alan, there is not a moment to be lost. How heavy this chest is. I'll take it for you. You bring the other things. He spoke rapidly and in an authoritative manner. Campbell felt dominated by him. They left the room together. When they reached the top landing, Dorian took out the key and turned it in the lock. Then he stopped. A troubled look came into his eyes. He shuddered. I don't think I can go in, Alan, he murmured. It's nothing to me. I don't require you, Campbell said coldly. Dorian half opened the door. As he did so, he saw the face of his portrait leering in the sunlight. On the floor in front of it was the torn curtain lying. He remembered the night before and had forgotten for the first time in his life to hide the fatal canvas and was about to rush forward when he drew back with a shudder. What was that loathsome red dew that gleamed wet and glistening on one of the hands as though the canvas had sweated blood? How horrible that was. More horrible, it seemed to him for the moment, than the silent thing that he knew was stretched across the table, the thing whose gross, tesque, misshapen shadow on the spotted carpet showed him that it had not stirred, but it was still there, as he had left it. He heaved a deep breath and opened the door a little wider. With half-closed eyes, he averted the head, quickly walked in, determined he would not even look once upon the dead man. Then stooping down and taking up the gold and purple hanging, he flung it right over the picture. There he stopped, feeling afraid to turn around, and his eyes fixed themselves on the intricacies of the pattern before him. He heard Campbell bringing in the heavy chest, and then the irons, and the other things that he required for his dreadful work. He began to wonder if he and Basil Hallward had ever met, and if so, what had they thought of each other? Leave me now, said a stern voice behind him. He turned and hurried out, just conscious that the dead man had been thrust back into the chair and that Campbell was gazing at the glistening yellow face. As he was going downstairs, he heard the key being turned in the lock. It was long after seven when Campbell came back into the library. He was pale, but absolutely calm. I have done what you asked me to do, he muttered. Now goodbye. Let us never see each other again. You have saved me from ruin, Alan. I cannot forget that, Dorian said simply. As soon as Campbell had left, he went upstairs. There was a horrible smell of nitric acid in the room, but the thing that had been sitting at the table was gone.
That concludes our tale for this week, my friends. Please return next week and we will continue our journey through The Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. If you wish to rest here some more, please find a space that suits you, whether you curl up by the fire, partake in some food and beverage in our kitchen, take a nap in one of our many rooms, or take a stroll around the garden. Please know you are always welcome at Snyder's Rest, my friend. If you are continuing your journey, the multiverse is bursting with options for you. To the north, today just needs to be over. Wait, what? You've done this before. Prepare for an intense and emotional ride as you're stuck reliving the same day over and over, trying to reach the person you love. Good luck, you're gonna need it. To the west, life is all about traveling, sharing stories and manifesting destiny. Take a wander across the plains of the US, going wherever you like at whatever speed you desire. Collect stories from folks you meet and retell them to others finding the fascination in storytelling, and enjoy as the stories begin to take on a life of their own. Happy trails, boss! To the east, the world is a mess. Take on the mission of cleaning it up and restoring nature to its true beauty. Grab your trusty vacuum and some water and chill out here helping nature and its beautiful creatures and discovering what wonders await you when you give nature a fresh start. And if you're making your own way out there, good luck my friend, wherever you end up. Wherever you come from and wherever you're going, thank you for spending some time here with us at Sniper's Rest. Remember to take care of yourself, be kind to others, hydrate, take a moment to look out into the world and marvel at how incredible it all is. How incredible you are, friend. Until next time, please take care on your way.